Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, I sit down with Dean Immel, an Oklahoma City kinetic artist who crafts moving copper wind sculptures of all shapes and sizes. Dean has been a regular at the Oklahoma City Festival of the Arts for years and was selected as the 2020 featured artist by the Oklahoma City Arts Council. And although this year's festival has been canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic, art continues to move. Join me as I learn about Dean's early days, his exciting adventures, and what inspires him to work with the wind. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Dean, welcome to the show. Oh, Charles, glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I reached out to the uh, Oklahoma City Arts Council recently and and said, I know that the arts uh, festival is canceled for this year due to the coronavirus and the, uh, the state of emergency that we're in, the pandemic. And I said, I'd really love it's a very big bummer for, for you and for uh, many uh, tens of thousands of Oklahomans and, and uh, folks from surrounding states that come to visit. And I just said, you know, I've got a podcast and I'd love to interview someone and you were top of the list. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Well, as you may know, Dean, we start each episode with a kickoff question and you've chosen yours. And I'll read that and we'll just see where the conversation takes us. Okay. Okay. So, Dean, what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning? Well, humorously, and since my wife isn't here, I'd say my wife kicks me out of bed in the morning, gives me a list (laughs) of things to do, and I'm on my way. Yeah. Uh, You know, honestly, uh, I like probably, and a lot of people are listening to this thing, I wake up in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, my mind just turns on. And I think about things, tasks that are coming up, you know, for during the next day, uh, you know, problems I might have, how I'm going to, and of course, keeps me awake. Probably, I'm usually awake for an hour, hour and a half before I can get back to sleep. But it's also kind of a creative time, you know, for me, because I'm not distracted by anything going on during the day. Uh, the wife is asleep. Uh, there's nothing, you know, in the house, no TV, you know, no phone calls. And I can just sort of let my mind roam. And doing so, I come up with some of my best ideas. And so this is, this is literally what causes you to get out of bed in the morning. And what is a typical time when your mind turns on and, and you can't help but get up and respond to that creative tug? Well, the bad time is usually sometime between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. But <laughs> luckily, I can get back to sleep. And then by around 5.30 or so, uh, I'm cursed. I've always been an early riser with you know, the construction business and Air Force, I was, I always got up early. And 5.30 is, is usually kind of an average time for me to get up and get going. And okay. so, you know, with that, my, my day begins and there's just, you know, no telling what it's going to do, but I guarantee it's not going to involve sitting down. <laughs> I get that impression. You and I have spoken, uh, you know, apart from the podcast and preparation and uh, you seem to me to be a person of great in, uh, industry and energy, uh, which I'd love to hear and, and have you uh, tell our listeners about your story, maybe 
you know, start wherever you want. There's no rules on this podcast. We're just trying to find out why you do what you do and, and uh, the difference that makes in your life and the lives of others. So if you'd like, just tell us a little bit about your background, maybe where you grew up and a bit about your uh, early years. Sure. Uh, I was born in Oklahoma City, you know, in 1949. Uh, I was the oldest son of seven children. There were five boys, you know, and two girls. We lived in Oklahoma City until I was about in the second grade. Then my dad decided with all the boys that he needed to move, move us all out in the country. He was kind of had a country experience when he was growing up, and he saw it as a good way to keep us busy and probably out of trouble. So we moved to a little acreage, you know, south of Edmond and uh, spent about four or five years out there. We bought a, a little Guernsey cow, which I milked every morning before we would catch the school bus. We catch the school bus at seven o'clock in the morning. That meant that I was up somewhere between five and five fifteen in the morning to milk the cow. Yes, people actually did that. But anyway, uh, you know, it, it was it was it was a chore, but I didn't look upon it as a chore. It's just kind of what I did. Uh, but you know, we got up. We had we had a huge garden out there, and you know, mom and dad planted green beans, uh, tomatoes. And we just we just had a lot of fun out in the country. There was a little pond we could fish in. Uh, dad and mom tried to have you know something in the way of a school party at the end of the year every year. Invited everybody out. And it was, it was sort of a nice social thing. But uh, really, because there were so many of us, Charles, and of course, we weren't aware of this at the time, but there really wasn't a lot of money to go around. And uh, one reason because of that, when Christmas time would come around, of course, we didn't have any money to buy presents for other brothers and sisters. So my mom and dad, mainly my mom, came up with the idea that we would try and make things, you know, for each other. And she would come up with some type of a craft. Like I remember one year we made lanyards for each other. She, she somehow got some stuff at a hobby store and we, she taught us how to weave lanyards and you know, we put whistles, we put anything that we could you know, on the end of it, but it was something we could do with our hands. And from that, I kind of uh, graduated to finding out that my dad had something called a toolbox. <laughs> I love playing with his tools. My brothers love playing with his tools. And to dad's credit, he never yelled at us for losing his tools. I think years later, he said he lost at least three toolboxes worth of tools, you know, trying to teach his sons how to saw a straight line with a handsaw, you know, what an open end wrench does. This is the way you use a screwdriver. And, you know, just taught us little hands-on stuff you know, that he thought, you know, it might be necessary, you know, later on in our life. But, uh, you know, just a lot of hands-on stuff that we did. But when I, when I was entering junior high school in seventh grade, his job forced us to move back into Oklahoma City. And we did that, uh, you know, grew on up with my brothers and, you know, had a nice, nice experience at Harding High School uh, here in Oklahoma City. And uh, once I graduated from high school, uh, I was a deep, you know, kind of a pretty decent athlete and a student, and I got a scholarship up at Yale and took advantage of that. Uh, you know, went up there, you know, got an engineering degree. But, well, let me tell you, Charles, from a guy that just basically had only left the state of Oklahoma one time in his entire life up until then to go back east to a place like Yale, 
it was a rather daunting experience for me. Uh, you know, you're top of your class here in high school, you go up, go up there and you come to find out that every other person that you meet up there was also the top of their class. So it was, it was an academically challenging situation, but it was one that we all rose to the occasion for. But it was, it was kind of interesting to me, and I look back at this uh, later and I try to decide what had happened, but I came home, flew home Christmas, that first Christmas freshman year, and I wasn't gonna go, wasn't gonna go back. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it just didn't feel right to me. And I was, I was gonna get off the airplane, tell my folks that, you know, I've had it, you know, I'm just gonna come back and either go to OU or OSU and that's gonna be it. Well, back in those days, you could meet people as they were getting off the airplane. And as I got off the airplane, there is all my family, all my brothers and sisters, my mom and dad, and they are so happy to see their son, you know, coming back. And they were cheering and clapping. And Charles, I did not have it in me to tell them I, I wasn't going back. That's so interesting, that point right there. And I don't want to interrupt you, but was this, they were proud of you? There was, was, oh, uh, gosh, was, yeah. Yeah, this I mean, was family you know, pride. It, it, was, it was family pride. <laughs> uh, part of it, I was to find out later, dad really wanted me to go to MIT. Oh. Because dad wasn't really a student when he was in high school, but he became a student in college. But his freshman year, his grades weren't that good. And after his freshman year, he was a straight A engineering student himself. He applied to transfer to MIT his senior year and darn it, they turned him down. I see, yeah. And he was pissed. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he wanted his son to apply to MIT <laughs> sure. and turn them down. So any, anyway, <laughs> it didn't work out. I was, I was just glad to be there. But the, yeah. the funny thing about that uh, time coming home Christmas was when I went back after Christmas vacation, all of a sudden, something had changed. And mm -hmm. to this day, Charles, I couldn't tell, it, tell you what it was, but all of a sudden, it became not only tolerable, but enjoyable. And I'm sure something inside me changed. And probably if I spent a lot of money on therapy, I'd find out what that was. <laughs> but I simply was able to enjoy, you know, the rest of my time you know, up there at Yale. Yeah, you know, and like, that, I don't want to identify what that may be either, but... Uh, I know from folks that I talk to and, and in my own life as well, we tend to have these formative experiences at some point in our lives. <clears throat> and they often involve um, disruption. These times that are, we're in unfamiliar territory. We, you mentioned, I didn't like it. I didn't want to keep going. And then something happens in that space. We had, we had been you know, set. You, you said that you were set on, I didn't plan on returning. And then you got off the uh, airplane, and there's your family cheering you on. And who knows what exactly happened, you know, but, but uh, it could be well, that it, there was that sense of purpose, that there was more meaning in what you were doing, and a higher sense of whether that's duty or support or, uh, you know, something part, bigger part than yourself. Me, part of it for me was really, I think, responding to a challenge, and how do oh, I respond to a challenge? Right, there you go. That's another big and, one, too. And, you know, my you know, youthful experiences as an athlete, you know, you respond to challenges. Right. You'd already yeah. been there. People step up to you and they challenge you on the spot. Yeah. And how do you respond to that? You know, some people respond with anger. Some people can do it academically. Some people combine both. You know, I would do, I would do the whole gamut. But as I went further and further in life and discovered that life is nothing but a bunch of challenges and it's a richness in life 
Mm. And how you respond to those challenges, are you going to be a happy person or are you just going to be, oh, gosh, I can't do that. And I, I've never been that way. I thrive in challenges. I mean, that's just the way, for some reason, I'm wired, and God only knows why that is for me. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, you know, I get, a, I get out of college, and, of course, this back in the Vietnam days, I had a low draft number anyways, and I wind up in the Air Force. And the one thing about the Air Force kind of continuing along this train of thought, they present you with a raft of challenges. They train you and then they turn you loose and it's up to you to see how you're going to perform. And I became a navigator on C-130s, uh, logged about 2,000 hours, you know, over, over four and a half years. And it was, it was a challenging job. Because back then you didn't have, or you had a rudimentary sort of GPS, but we didn't really use that very much. You actually shot the stars, you figured out where you were by different ways, and nothing involved a machine. It was all you. Well, I thought I was a pretty stud duck back then. I mean, look back in your time when you were 23 years old, there's probably not a guy or a gal alive that didn't think that, you know, I'm pretty neat. Oh, and yeah. I was no, I was no exception. I mean, I'd almost graduated, you know, cum laude from Yale. I was first in my class at navigator school. And I thought I, I couldn't just could walk on water when it came to navigation. First time that I go on an overwater flight, we take off from Goose Bay, Newfoundland, and we're flying to Frankfurt, Germany. And, you know, I'm there, I'm walking out to the airplane and I drop my watch. Well, my watch, you have to know the time. To shoot celestial. Luckily, I had a backup watch, but I never really depended upon it. So I had a little air of foreboding on it, but then again, no big deal because I'm a great navigator. <laughs> I get on board the airplane, and the first thing I look at is the compasses. There's two systems on the compasses, and they're separated by two degrees. Well, no big deal. We'll get up, you know, I'll shoot the North Star, I'll determine the correction, and we'll get on our way. Well, two degrees is a big deal when you're flying thousands of miles across the ocean. You can not only miss a town, you can miss a country on stuff like that. We take off, get up to altitude, we lose contact, electronic contact with the coast, and we're still in the clouds. Now, I cannot do anything. My Loran, there was an electronic thing on the airplane that I could use radio waves to determine where I was. It broke lock and wasn't, wasn't giving me any information. I'm three hours into this flight, and this is at the night, during the night in the North Atlantic, and Charles, I don't know where I am. Okay, I'm feeling pretty scared. I'm feeling, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah you're, you're above the clouds. This is nighttime. It, 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 You've lost your navigation to, tools. Okay. Lost everything, and <laughs> the, the, the pilot and the co-pilot are sitting up in front of the airplane, and they're just yakking away, because it's on autopilot. They right. have nothing to do unless things flame out. Uh -huh. And I'm getting pissed because they're having such a good time. And I'm sweating bullets back there. And finally, I come over the intercom. I said, could you guys shut the heck up so I can figure out where the heck we are? I was used a little bit more colorful language than what I just. But anyway, sure. all of a sudden, silence on the airplane. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, guys, the only thing I have on this airplane that works is my radar. And I said, it only goes out 240 miles. And I said, we're in the middle of the ocean. And I said, this is what I think we can do and see what you think about it. Our course, of course, we're supposed to stay within five nautical miles of our course. 
I said, if we will deviate for that, instead of flying or what we call a great circle route, if we will deviate north 70 miles off course, I ought to be able to get a fix off the coast of Greenland and figure out where we are. But I said, it's, it's, you know, we're breaking the rules, but I said, we have no choice. As I said, I don't know what the winds are. I said, we could be blown. We could be 40 miles away from where I am. And I said, that's a conservative guess. So we agreed, that's what we're gonna do. We deviated, we went north. I got a fix, determined where I was, turned ahead going across. Finally get out of the freaking clouds. I could do what I'm supposed to do, but Charles, I was a wreck. What I learned from that trip was one, I'm not an individual. I depend upon other people. I depended upon my crew members. We had to get together, you know, and make a decision. And that I needed to pre-flight a little bit better and allow for things to go wrong. In other words, I needed to have a game plan. And I embraced that the rest of my life. Uh, once I got out of the Air Force, uh, I got in, got in the construction business here in Oklahoma City, concrete pumping business. And we did, our claim to fame was we hardly would ever break down. We solved our problems in the shop. We did not let, you know, just willy-nilly get on board an airplane and think everything was going to be great. We wanted to make sure that everything worked and we were fastidious about doing that. And that's when my mechanical skills and in a way a little bit of my artistic skills began to develop because I worked with some really great guys uh, when I was in the construction business. And I had knowledge, I could change points and plugs on a car, but you know, nothing more beyond that. Well, after a few years with these guys, we were overhauling Mack engines, we were doing hydraulic systems, you know, complex electronic problems, and things came natural, you know, for me. I was working with guys that knew what they were doing, and I asked questions. So I, you begin to accumulate throughout your life a certain base of knowledge. You don't know where that is going to take you, but it's kind of fun to be able to do things. And I always like doing things with my hands. And at the same time, uh, my wife and I had a bunch of rental property. Of course, I wound up doing most of the repairs on the rental property. Again, I'd watch plumbers, electrician, heat and air guys, and I'd see what they were doing. And if I didn't know what they were doing, didn't understand it, I'd ask them. And most people are tickled to death to explain to you and tell you about it. I mean, yeah, there's a few grumpy guys out there, but most people like to instruct and for someone that's interested. So I began to, I had knowledge of welding, brazing, uh, you know, painting, you know, working with metals and materials. And all that began to lay a foundation, a framework for what we're doing today, you know, me and my art and, and wind sculptures. Uh, 25 years ago, when I was still, you know, in the construction business and doing all this stuff, if you'd have said today, you know, well, you're going to be an artist at Oklahoma City Arts Festival and you're going to be the, you know, artist of the year, I just said, you're nuts. There's no, you know, you're crazy. I don't know where you came up with that. Right, because we should say for those listeners that don't know, you are the featured artist for the 2020 Oklahoma City Arts Festival. Woo -woo. Just by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you never so saw that coming. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You I, never you, saw you that never coming. You never see it coming. Yeah, that wasn't but, an ambition know, or a goal. Yeah. No, but always be open, you know, to possibilities. And you have more possibilities, the more things you can learn. Uh, I mean, I, I've learned a lot of stuff, Charles, that I'm never going to use. I mean, I took up uh, something called marquetry when I was over in Germany for a while, making pictures out of wood veneer. 
Uh, I've done leather crafting. Uh, I still like to do stained glass stuff. I make stained glass ornaments for the kids every, every Christmas. But it's doing different things with your hands, learning different skills. And after a while, you come to find out that a lot of the talents and requirements for the individual uh, you know, tasks that you're doing overlap. You know, like something that I did, you know, a year ago, not, it's not entirely, but it gives me a little bit more confidence to go into a new area. And, you know, there, it, there's always kind of a hesitancy to try something new, but the more things you know, the easier that transition is to make. And I just simply over the years accumulated a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, insignificant knowledge that's probably, you know, pass away. In fact, I joke with my wife that I, I tell her, you know, people always come up to me and say, Dean said, can you come over and help me with this? And of course, I'd like to say, well, you know, I used to know how to do that, but I've kind of forgotten, <laughs> you know, just with the idea of passing this off to somebody else. But anyway, we were on a, we were on a trip one summer, uh, went up to Colorado, and we were with another couple and went to an art show. And there was my first kinetic motion art. And it was uh, from a guy named Lyman Whitaker. He does a lot of stuff out in New Mexico and Arizona. And we were fascinated with it. I mean, I, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that. The couple that we were with were gonna buy one of his pieces. And Lyman, I hate to tell you, but I talked him out of it because I told him, I said, John and JD, I said, there's not a hundred dollars worth of material in that. Let me make you one, you know, famous last words. And of course, secretly, Charles, I wanted to make one for myself because I, one thing that I've always been, I've always been cheap. You know, if, if I can make it, I'm not going to buy it. So anyway, we go home and uh, I sit down and I start making jigs and everything. And after two months, I've made all my jigs. I've basically kind of copied one of his pieces for them. I have it set on a horizontal jig. And back then, I had made the mistake of brazing each one of the arms in place to the copper tubing that I used. And I forgot. And of course, it was a good lesson learned. I forgot that when you heat up copper, hard copper, and you allow it to cool back down without quenching it, it reverts to soft copper. So I take this 10 foot long sculpture and I lift it up out of its cradle and the darn thing bends like a wet noodle. And you talk about hacked off. I've got two months into this thing and now it's, it's, it's worthless. Right. Well, if there's one thing that I don't do, I don't quit. I spent two days straighten that thing back out. If you've ever tried to straighten something with a curve, it's a challenge. But I got it straight, re-annealed it, got it hot, quenched it back down, made it hard copper again, and it worked. So mission accomplished, first thing done. My wife was getting ready to have a 50th birthday. I made a wind catcher, uh, sculpture for her that had 50 wind catchers on it for her birthday. And just other ideas would come to me. You know, like we started out talking, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have an idea about something. And I'd go out and, you know, first, first thing you know, I probably have four different sculptures out in the backyard. Of course, you know, what am I going to do with them? I, you know, I'm just kind of making them. I just like to make stuff. And luckily our neighbor, uh, name was Susie Nelson was affiliated with the arts festival. And she came over to me and said, Oh, Dean said, you need to apply to the arts festival. I said, people will just pay anything for this stuff. Well, uh, one, I found out that's not exactly true, Charles, <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, I, I didn't see myself, and I hate to use the term an artsy-fartsy person, but I was, 
I'm a construction guy. I come home, my fingernails are always bruised. I've got grease underneath my fingers. I'm working 12 to 14 hour days. I'm just not in that venue, but I, I love making this stuff. So I apply, you know, they accept me. I go down there the first year and Charles sit there all week long. Boy, you artists out there can appreciate this. I'm selling nothing, nothing. The last day I sell one piece, barely pays my material cost for the whole week. And I just kind of come home dragging my tail between my legs and I'm feeling a little bummed. In fact, not a little bummed. I'm feeling really bummed out because I've been rejected by the public. That's right. Of course. Yeah. For everyone to so see. Anyway, my wife, you know, yeah. she, she looks at me and she says, you know, you always have to make stuff big. Why can't you just make something small for a change? <laughs> and to my credit, I listened to her because she was right. Okay. And luckily the arts festival invited me back next year because I was not a very good seller for them that first year. So, but anyway, they invite me back, but I downsized everything, and, you know, basically almost cut stuff in half. Mm -hmm. And Charles, before the show had even opened, I'd already sold two pieces and, you know, kind of the rest is history, you know, on the thing, you know, it, uh, people like it. Uh, you know, I, I approach things, uh, everybody does it differently. And for me, I like a good design. I, I get my design that I, that I want the way it, it's, it's just going to visually look but then behind the scenes, because of my experience in the construction business, I want to make something for you that's going to last. In other words, you've got a choice of materials, uh, the quality of bearings you use, the finishes you put on things. And if you're going to pay hard money, for hard earned money to me for something, I want to give you something that's going to last more than two or three months. Uh, I just, you know, just something in me that can't, you know, I, I just can't do that. Uh, but, but for me to give you something that, you know, you're going to find enjoyment out of, uh, you know, is, is really, uh, I mean, that's what keeps me going, you know, in this business, just the thrill. But uh, I, I won't say that it's not without its pitfalls. And uh, for me, I, I sold a sculpture one time to a lady uh, out in Choctaw and, uh, she and her husband were retired. He had been a mounted police officer in Choctaw Police Force. They bought a piece from me, and you could tell that this was, you know, this was a pretty good expense for them. And uh, she calls me up about hmm, three or four months later and says, Dean, it's just not shiny anymore. Is there anything you can do, you know, to make it shiny? Well, of course, you know, it broke my heart because, uh, you know, she, she liked it, but she had, was disappointed. And I, I realized, and as I was driving out there to get the thing, that that disappointment did not come upon her in one day, the day that she called me. It was a growing thing as it was becoming more or less and less shiny. And of course, for me back then, I liked the copper to age and become mellow and kind of blend into the garden rather than always be, ah, you know, shiny out there. But that's not what she wanted. And that's not the way it was when I sold it to her. So I took that thing back and I'll tell you, Charles, put heart and soul in that thing. If you've ever tried to shine up copper, you can imagine, you know, and these, it's got all these little pieces on it. I'm having to do that for each one, but I got it pretty darn close. And I finally realized I can't get it any, any shinier, but I could go out and get some exterior polyurethane, some high gloss, give it a shot. And that popped it and made it back up. And I told my wife, I said, from here on out, 
everything that I get is getting get get a get you know a high gloss exterior polyurethane coating because they buy it shiny and I want it to be shiny for them as long as they can. And so I, I try and listen to people that have bought my stuff. Uh, if there's ever any criticism uh, or, or, you know, things have come back sometimes broken early on. Uh, I'll give you, for instance, as you pound out copper, which is what I do, what you're actually doing is thinning it. It's making it thinner as you go. And that thinness causes an expansion of the copper and causes a deformity, which creates a cup. Well, I was in trying to shape the copper, the thinnest part of it turned out to be exactly where I was brazing it to the stainless steel shaft. And the copper was thin, putting that braze on it. If it's sitting there in the wind, you know, especially out in Okarchi where the wind just blows like the Dickens, it can sometimes blow off. And I, I, I saw immediately what the problem was. So I changed my technique to where that part is no longer thin. I, I altered the way that I, form the copper and you know I'm always looking to have not only a better design but a better mechanical design too because the two go hand in hand and it, you can't have one without the other so I, I have a real pride when I put something out there that I, I pretty much know that it's going to sit there for a long time because gosh I'm almost I can look out the window right now and that sculpture that I made for my wife 20 years ago yeah. it's still there it's still got the same bearings on it and it's still turning in the wind. So I mean, well, it, it's, it, it, it's a fun thing to do. And the nice part about it is, you know, I mean, yeah, I like making some money off the thing, but it gets me out of the house and I meet some really interesting people, you know, this way. And, you know, left up to my own volition, I'd probably just stay in my shop, see family and maybe one or two friends. I'm not a social butterfly. You know, I like working with my hands, working in the shop. And for me, that's, pretty much where it stops and starts. But this kind of forced me to get out and meet some really cool people. And also when I install, I go in their backyard to do their installation and I get to see their landscape, the plants they've chose. Cause you know, again, like a lot of people listening to this, I consider myself kind of an amateur gardener. And I like to see, you know, how plants have been planted, you know, how they're sited, how they did. And so, I mean, there's just a lot of good things, you know, that come, you know, from all of this. Yeah, well, so. there sure are, Dean, and, and thank you for going uh, in depth and at length about um, your experience all the way from the, the early years of growing up and, and milking the family cow and coming back to town and, and going to uh, Yale and that formative experience that you had, whatever those factors were, you know, you knew from athletics that uh, you could persevere and you could rise to a challenge and and for you, you said that you really enjoy the challenge. And, and uh, I think our listeners surely by this time can appreciate that fact and uh, meeting all of the different uh, problem solving and, and creative demands of your craft right now. And you've described them so well. Um, and that uh, attention to detail, but also attention to quality and how it impacts the folks that receive your art. If art is anything, it's, it, you know, there's somebody that receives it or is impacted by it. We can have a craft or a skill or, or something that we enjoy, but art at some point affects other people and generally emotionally. And, uh, and I know you've got some amazing stories there that we've talked off air about. Um, but I did want to point out just a couple of things that I thought were really amazing uh, in terms of key lessons learned. Because I am a life purpose coach, I like to pull some of these out. And, uh, you know, you said uh, 
you know, perseverance is something that seems to come up over and over for me, whether that's liking a challenge or, or problem solving or um, looking at another way of doing things, all these creative ways of approaching a process is really seems to be fueled by your passion, your passion for working with your hands, uh, for, for finding out how things fit together and what causes them to function well. And I can relate in a, in a different way, a more conceptual way, in the work that I do, just how do people work and what causes them to function well? And, uh, you know, how do they find out who they are and, and the work that they do? So I generally really enjoy talking to engineers because there's a lot of crossover um, in systems and architects as well. Uh, it, it really yeah, provides... You have to watch out when you're talking to engineers and architects. We'll bore the crap out of you. Well, I can go on and on, and, and my wife is not in this room either, but maybe if she were, she would tell you. I can talk for an hour straight, and, uh, and she's just <laughs> nodding her head. <laughs> so, but uh, that's one of the things, that perseverance and just the, the passion for doing what you do. And then this other key point, this is just three points, and the, this is the third one, is that uh, those skills that you acquire over time, you never really know what those are going to lead to. And I've heard that from other guests. David Lee Anderson was uh, another guest on the show, an uh, artist that's doing hyper-realistic paintings and other work, and an actor, a musician. And guess what? They have a garden, too, just like me. You know, so <laughs> I think a lot of us creative types <laughs> do have gardens. And, uh, and he described that same point, just learning these skills, these different um, uh, processes, and learning all he could about them. And I hear you saying the same thing. No different for me. I, I had no idea I'd be doing the work that I'm doing today, but the show's about you. And to hear that uh, all of your experience led to wind sculptures, that's deeply rewarding to you, not just for the process, but for the effect that it has on others. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind just describing some of those customers, if you're you know comfortable sharing some of their stories uh, that have meant a lot to you or, or to the folks that receive your art. Oh, you bet. I mean, there, there's a couple that, uh, you know, that really stand out. The first uh, uh, guy was in the construction business, bought a sculpture for his wife, and uh, his wife wasn't doing very well. Uh, and so we installed it outside of her bedroom window so she could have something to look at, you know, every day. And he, he called me back later, uh, you know, a few years down the road, and his wife had passed on. But he, he, want, he just wanted to thank me because he said his wife would look out that at the window every morning and would give her peace. And I mean, boy, I mean, what a powerful statement. I mean, I, can, I could almost get emotional about that right now. Yeah. But I had, an, had another lady that was a, was a librarian. And she bought one of my most expensive pieces. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I almost feel bad about that because I know these people don't have a lot of extra money. And but she did that, and I had uh, cause to come back. Uh, I think a limb had, you know, fallen on part of it, and I had to re-straighten a bit of it. And so I, I went back there and fixed it up for her. And she said that she would just go out every evening and sit out on her back patio, and make a glass of tea, and would just simply watch that move in the wind. And uh, of course. I like them too, because I mean, I, I love anything that moves. I mean, wind sculptures, you know, weeping willows, pampas grass, you know, anything that has motion to it, uh, you know, I, I just find, you know, interesting. And, you know, people, you know, people do that. They, it, it, to me, it's, I, I kind of draw a parallel between looking at a fire in a fireplace. 
I mean, yeah, it's kind of the same fire. It's flickering, it's flickering, it's flickering, but there's not a lot different going on, but it's moving and there's a little, there's a dynamic going on there that I don't call it lulls you to sleep, but it, it sort of calms you down. And I like that effect. I mean, that's, that's one reason I've stayed in this for so long, Charles, is that uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And my wife found out in the rent house business that if I did not like the type of wallpaper that I was putting up, that I probably was not going to be putting up the wallpaper. I have to kind of like what I'm doing if I'm going to keep, you know, keep on doing it. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, when I get, you know, just a little bit of a feedback like that, you know, from somebody, man, that, that stokes the fire in my furnace and it keeps me going because uh, there's nothing better than to feel appreciated. That's right. You said it. And we all want that, you know, and, and what I think is really amazing about your process is that you actually do the installation as well. So you get to see it from the time that you're creating it uh, in your own home environment, in your own studio, in your own mind, and, and here it comes to fruition. And, uh, and then a, a customer purchases your art and, and you're doing the home installation. And so I wonder just what, what is that process like, like a couple of examples of when you're actually doing the install and, and uh, you're there chatting with the customer. <laughs> well, it's, it's really not as complicated as you think. In fact, I tell okay. people it's kind of, kind of sad that most people lack the, you know, I'll call it the uh, confidence to put a fence post on the ground and have it straight up and down. I mean, cause, cause my stuff, basically it needs to be vertical to be, as efficient as it can using the wind otherwise because it's not dynamically statically balanced and if it's off vertical then there's going to be a heavy spot on it and it's going to rock a little bit before the wind actually turns it around so i go out and set it you know in the ground with concrete to where it doesn't do that and just a little snippet probably is not meaningful to 99 percent of the people who hear this but I, I was talking with my guys at work one day and I was, we, I had rental property. I needed to set a bunch of fence posts in the backyard and I was griping because I got to mix up the concrete, you know, dig the hole, brace the, the post to get it straight up and down and, and do all that over and over and over again. And they said, what do you mean brace the post? I said, yeah. I said, I want it to stay vertical. I said, no, you're doing this all wrong. I said, okay, wise guy I said, how am I supposed to do it? I said, well, what you do, you dig your, your post, you dig your hole, put your post in, pour in dry mix. And he said, then you use that to level, you know, get your post vertical. And he said, the dry mix will hold it in place. Then all you do is pour water over that dry mix that hydrates, you know, the concrete, it gets hard. They said, if you really want to be lazy, don't even do that. Just pour the dry mix in the hole and walk off and leave it come back a week later, it's going to be hard as a rock, just like it would if you left a bag of concrete mix open in your garage, you know, it's going to get hot, just hard, just from moisture in the air. So anyway, I learned that from them. And that's how I, you know, when I set my post, I pour in the dry mix, get it plumped. So I don't have to brace it, which would be really hard on a round steel pole to brace that. So <laughs> my wife has returned. So anyway, uh, <laughs> no problem. I, I basically pour it in, get it plumbed, and you know, get it set, then come back the next day, usually, or sometimes I can go ahead and set the bearings and get the bearings spaced. And because once the bearings are spaced and the concrete gets hard, you just set the uh, sculpture on top of the pole, and that's it. Pretty, it's really, the installation is so simple, you know, it's, it's all not even funny, but it's very important to me that it be done right. 
Right. And it, it is critical. That's why I was curious about the process and also, of course, the interaction. But um, yeah, in order for it to spin right, using layman's terms, that needs to be up and down. Yeah. It needs to be it needs, needs to be vertical and straight because that's how it's designed. So form well, I always, I always joke with people. I tell them I install a little battery inside it to keep it going for a week or two until I cash the check. <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. Well, Dean, we didn't talk about this question, but feel free to answer however you want. And I just wonder in this time of, of coronavirus and, and all that's going on and the craziness of, of our world, do you have any words for folks that might be listening just, uh, you know, what you're doing to get through or any words of advice or lessons learned? Well, for me, uh, you know, uh, the first thing I'll, I'll talk about is, you know, how do you deal with disappointment? because, you know, here I was, you know, been at the arts festival, it seems like forever. And finally I became, you know, recognized, you know, as the artist of the year. Well, guess what, you know, no, no art show this year and they're gonna have a different artist next year. Gilbert called me up and told me, said, Dean said, you know, this is what we're gonna do. We decided we're just gonna, you know, start all over again next year and do that said, you know, uh, we, so, you're the artist this year, but next year is going to be somebody else. And I, I told Gilbert, I said, look, I said, Gilbert, I said, I'm totally fine with that. I said, I don't need, you know, the adoring throngs, you know, a crowd of people making a speech to or stuff like that. It was enough for me to be recognized by you as being the sculpture artist of the year. And that's where it starts and stops with me. I'm not, I'm not mad and the slightest, you know, about this thing, because there's, there's a lot of bigger fish to fry out there this year, instead of, you know, just worrying about this. And, you know, for me, I don't, I don't, I don't need anything else than what they did. They could have just called me up over the telephone and said, Dean, your artist of the year said, you know, we, we picked you. And it could have been between, you know, just two or three of us. And that would have, in other words, I don't get, maybe it's because I'm older. I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't let things bother me that really have no place in making me upset. I'm just, I'm not going to let that happen. But uh, another way, getting back to your original question, you know, dealing with the time off, I've got a lot of stuff to do, you know, here around the house. I mean, you know, my wife and I are going to be downsizing next year. Uh, I'm working around the house. I have things to occupy myself. Uh, you know, you might have a room that, gosh, I never really liked the color of the paint in that room. Move the furniture out and paint the room. You know, do something. The worst thing you can do is sit around and feel sorry for yourself. Quite frankly, there is no cure for that. I, I don't know of a cure. If you're not active, I mean, uh, if even if it involves just calling up a friend you haven't, met, you haven't talked to in 30 years and hear their voice. You know, do something, do something. You know, don't sit there and be entertained by Netflix all day long and expect that to make your life happy and fulfilled. Get out there, pull some weeds. My daughter, I have a daughter named Missy. I mean, she, she, I said, Missy, what'd you do today? She said, well, I found a few more weeds in the yard. <laughs> we, you know, we laugh about it, but again, Charles, it's something to go out and do. Go out and Absolutely. do something. You know, find something to do. Life is full of things, you know, to do. You can, you can go and, I mean, clean the sink in your bathroom. I, you know, I, I don't care what you do. Do something. And you, there's just a sense of accomplishment when you get, you know, finish a task 
and you look down and it's better than what you let what you you know you know saw it originally and uh i don't know that that's just the way i look i look at things and uh, i i think there's a lot of people out there that are doing that right now and uh you know it's making the time pass uh you know it's a hard time for everybody uh but uh, you know the, the sheltering in place you know home's not a bad place it just depends upon what you make of it and uh you know we we just choose to make uh, make it the best we can and the best way we know how from our life experience. And uh, luckily I've got years of, you know, training behind me, but I don't care where you are in life. I don't know if you know the end of a paintbrush to use, go to a store, buy it, make some mistakes, but don't make the same mistake twice. Go back and try it again. You know, you'll get better. You can, I mean, you can learn, you know, I mean, life is, I, I I don't even know if this is a true story or not, but I'll, I'll tell it to you. There's, there's an old story that goes around about Aristotle when he, he was sentenced to death. And he's in his, in his prison cell, he's getting ready to be executed. And there's a young man uh, that's with him and he's whistling a song. And Aristotle turns to the young guy and he said, could you teach me that song? And he said, man, what do you mean? You're getting ready to die. So why, why do you want to, you know, Learn, learn another song. He said, ah, but to know one more thing. Mm. And yes, that's, that's how I've always looked at life. Learn one more thing. You can never know when the ability to change points in your car, fix flat, you know, fix a flat, you know, you know, clean out a toilet. I don't care what it is. Learn stuff. And let that be your own stuff. It doesn't have to be my stuff or your stuff. You just learn your stuff and, you know, have fun with it. So, I mean, that, that's kind of how I approach things. I love that, Dean. Let's, let's end with that because that is some solid advice and lived experience. Um, I, I think that's going to reach a lot of people and, and give them some hope and some ideas for uh, how to spend this time and, and uh, make it meaningful and purposeful and also to help pass it a little bit better, maybe a little bit quicker, because we're all trying to find our way forward. I did want to give you the opportunity amen. to just, amen. I did want to give you the opportunity to also uh, provide any contact information for folks that may want to reach out to you and, and uh, contact you about your art or, or other things they might want to reach out to you for. Uh, how can they best uh, get in touch with you? The, the best way is through email, because quite frankly, my cell phone has a personality of its own. Sometimes it rings, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I'm yeah. terrible at act, answering texts, although I, I'll, I'll try to. The best way is through email. And that the, uh, my email address is kdimel at hotmail.com. Okay, and, and I'll put and, that and in. I, I, resp I respond well to emails. You, you can also try to call me on my cell, which is 405-229-4516. But don't, don't think I just, I'm looking at my phone and not answering it because sometimes I just don't hear it. I'm, I maybe have some tools going or the phone might decide that it's going to screen your call. I don't, I don't know how, how this stuff works. You know, that, that's another skill I need to learn, Charles. Well, well there you go. So <laughs> constant, you are a lifelong learner. You are the embodiment of a learner. Well, yeah. Dean Emil, I, I appreciate you being on the show, taking your time, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, Charles.
You've been listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, you are meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today.